As you're seated, I invite you to pick up your Bibles and join me in Acts chapter 17 as I read from verses 16 through 31. Once again, that's Acts 17, 16 through 31. Um, if you don't have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to bring it with you. We're going to be in it every single week. Uh, and there's something about holding God's Word in your very hands that you can look at and you can see with your own eyes. I ask you to bring your own Bibles so that you can see what I'm saying is true. Uh, that it comes from God's word itself, that I'm not making this up. I think I mentioned this last week, not to take my word for it uh, and to examine these for yourself and having a Bible in front of you uh, allows you to, helps you with that. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, uh, please come and see me. I will give you a Bible. Uh, We will make sure to get one in your hands if you don't. So uh, let's turn once again, Acts 17, verses 16 through 31, as we continue working through Paul's uh, second missionary journey. This is what Luke writes. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And now, Father, what we know not teach us, what we are not make us, and what we have not give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last year, uh, right before the pandemic hit, Uh, my family, we subscribed to uh, Disney Plus, uh, which is Disney's streaming service of their entire movie and and TV library 
And as Pennsylvania uh, came into lockdown amidst the pandemic in mid-March, Disney Plus proved to be both a blessing and a curse. Uh, It was a blessing because it gave our family something fresh to watch and do in the midst of the lockdown and the stay-at-home order. Uh, But it was a curse because my children, being as young as they are, have a penchant for watching the same thing over and over and over and over again. One of those movies was uh, Frozen 2, which had just come on to Disney Plus at that time. Um, Pennsylvania was under a stay-at-home order for 46 days, which by my count means that I've probably seen Frozen 2 46 times. If you're not familiar with the movie, um, one of the main characters is Elsa. She is the ice queen of Arendelle, and um, she has these magical ice powers that she came to terms with in the first movie. In the sequel, Elsa begins to hear this angelic voice that seems to come out of nowhere. And the voice, it's a far-off voice in the distance, and the voice doesn't even say anything. It actually just sings a little tune. And Elsa's just kind of haunted by this unknown voice and feels that it's calling her and wooing her and pulling her into unknown territory. Elsa keeps hearing this throughout the beginning of the movie, and on one occasion, the voice actually wakes her up. And uh, in the middle of her sleep, in the middle of the night, she wakes up. She tries to ignore it. She's pulling a pillow over her head, but eventually she just gives up, right? She, she gets out of bed, and at that point, she does what all Disney princesses do. She sings a song. And um, the song is called Into the Unknown, and it's like the main anthem of the whole movie. In the song, she's talking about this, uh, this unknown voice calling her. She's actually singing back to it. The object of the song is this unknown voice. She's singing to it. She's addressing the voice. And in the first verse, she has just this strong urge to resist it. Right? She tells it. She sings to it. Says, you're not even a voice. You're just a ringing in my ear. But by the time we get to the second verse of the song, she gives up resisting and her curiosity is piqued. She just has to know what this voice is that's calling her. I want to read the second verse of the song to you. Um, I won't sing it. You've already heard enough of my singing lately. But this is what Elsa sings. She says, what do you want? Because you've been keeping me awake. Are you here to distract me so I make a big mistake? Or are you somewhere, uh, someone out there who's a little bit like me, who knows deep down I'm not where I'm meant to be. Every day is a little harder as I feel your power grow. Don't you know there's part of me that longs to go into the unknown? Even in the bridge, she sings, are you out there? Do you know me? Can you feel me? Can you show me? As the apostle Paul's journey takes him into Athens, which is like the intellectual capital of the world, we come to find that the people there, while they may not even know it, 
are grasping for something into the unknown. You could almost lift the words straight out of Elsa's song and put them into the mouths of the Athenians. And Paul, with such masterful tact, explains to them that this unknown voice can be known. This passage records the most uh, thorough example that we have from Paul uh, in how he addresses a completely non-Jewish audience. And we'll dive specifically into his message, but I first want to set the scene for you so that you kind of understand the context of Paul's listeners. The, the scene can be set in, in verses 16 through 21. We, we see the context of Paul's message. Uh, Paul is in Athens. And he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him from Berea. And we are told that Paul is provoked, right? He is provoked within when he saw that the city was full of idols. This just means that Paul was deeply disturbed as he walked down the street and saw all the artwork and saw all the statues and saw all the, all the, the idol worship going on. He didn't marvel at their beauty. He was just disturbed by what was going on, he was actually angry. We get the sense that Paul is actually jealous on God's behalf. He doesn't want glory and praise to go to anyone or anything other than God. He's angry that the city has spent so much effort and resources on praising things that aren't the one true God. Paul is angry and and rightfully so, but what is Paul's solution here? How does Paul react? Does he react in a fit of rage? Does he kind of put his foot down and say, I will not stand for this idol or I'm so angry. They're all going down. No. He says, I need to go tell them about Jesus. They have to know about Jesus. I need to go and tell them about the one true God and how God loves them and how God longs for them to, to embrace him as the one true God. And so Paul gets up, he goes to the synagogue, which is his pattern, but he also finds himself preaching publicly uh, in the marketplace to anyone who's willing to listen. And in the first century, the marketplace was the hub of life in the city. It was a center for commerce and for trade, but it, was, it also functioned as a place where people could come and share ideas. It was a setting where discussion and debate could take place, could, could take place naturally. So Socrates, actually, who's one of the most famous philosophers from Athens in the 5th century BC, would use the marketplace as, as, as a, an area that anyone could come and converse with him. Right? He, he made himself available to anyone who wanted to talk with him in the marketplace. And in the marketplace, Paul comes across two different groups of thinkers, Right, two different groups of philosophers. Uh, they're known as the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, there's a lot that we could know about these groups, which we don't have time to get into. Uh, but we need to consider this morning, just consider them as groups that followed two different philosophical schools of thought. Okay? The Epicureans were followers of a third century BC philosopher named Epicurus. And the Stoics were followers of Zeno, who was also a third century philosopher. They got, actually got their name from the place where Zeno would teach. It was called Stoa. 
This is the Stoics. Now, according to verse 18, these philosophers' reception of Paul, and specifically his message, is somewhat of a mixed bag. They have a different response. It's a mixed response. And I will say that both of these responses are kind of a, a microcosm example of the greater culture in Athens. Both of the attitudes that we see in verse 18 were very prevalent and present in that particular culture. And so what are they? First, some of them said, what does this babbler wish to say? Who is this babbler? This is actually meant to be an insult to, to Paul. The term babbler literally refers to a scavenger bird that would pick up waste from here and there as it went about. They're saying Paul is just like a scrap monger who just picks up little bits of knowledge here and there and then passes them off as if he knows what he's talking about. A few commentators that I read said that they were actually accusing Paul of being an ignorant plagiarist and a religious charlatan. In modern terms, this would be like calling Paul a third-rate journalist, right? They're saying that, hey, these ideas are nothing more than you would find in the tabloids. This is one of the attitudes that they had. And the the attitude really that's conveyed here is of intellectual arrogance, right? The, The Athenians considered them intellectually superior to all other races to the point where they would actually call other races barbarians. But they're so foolish and they're so stupid and they are not intellectually heightened like we are that they're nothing more than a bunch of barbarians. These are intellectual bullies. That's the first attitude among the people in Athens, the philosophers. Uh, the first reaction to, to Paul from one group. But there is another group here that is genuinely interested in what Paul has to say. Right? They say, hey, this guy, he's a preacher of foreign divinities because he's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And hey, we're interested. We are, we are open to hearing about these different ideas. We want to hear more. Would you give us more details? And so, so they're interested. They say, let's put this guy in front of a crowd. And they take them to the Areopagus. Now the Areopagus is, um, was a small hill uh, covered in stone seats in the northwest region of Athens. It was an area that was used as a public forum for the rulers of Athens to hold uh, debates and discuss important matters on a more formal basis. And so if the marketplace is the informal venue in which uh, debate and discussion occur. The Areopagus is the formal venue for debate and discussion. Now you could look at this and you could read this and think, wow, this is amazing. They're they're giving Paul a platform. They they are so interested in what he has to say. They they are so genuinely interested and so genuinely interested in, in Jesus that they're letting him talk. They're they're giving him a formal platform to explain who Jesus is. But what Luke writes next in verse 21 shows us where their hearts truly are. Luke tells us that the population of Athens and even foreigners that lived there, quote, would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is somewhat of a dig at the culture of Athens. 
Luke's telling us that they really weren't seeking to know the one true God. They really, they really didn't care to seek Jesus. No, they're merely just wasting their time on the latest philosophical fad. Paul and his message, his teaching, they're just the flavor of the week. Their main concern isn't one for their soul. Their main concern isn't what their standing is before God. No, their main concern is just to gain information, to be enlightened, to enrich their minds. And so it was a pattern for them to jump from one God to another, from one philosophy to another, which is why their city is just inundated with idols to begin with. And now they can just chalk Jesus up with the plurality of divinities that we worship. That's great. Yeah, tell us about Jesus and we'll just add him to our list, right? Maybe we'll put a shrine or an altar or an idol up in honor of him. Regardless of such motives though, Paul takes advantage of the situation. He's not going to throw away his shot at sharing the gospel in Athens at the Areopagus. This brought Paul in front of an audience that was more educated and more cultured than anyone he's ever addressed. Athens is an intellectual powerhouse, right? It's, 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 it's effects from even the fourth and fifth centuries are still, of BC are still felt. One commentator wrote that the sculpture, the literature, the oratory of Athens in the 5th and 4th century BC remain unsurpassed. In philosophy too, Athens took the lead in place, being the native city of Socrates and Plato and the adopted home of Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno. It was at this time a leading center of learning. A modern idiom we might use to describe it as a great is as a great university city, an intellectual powerhouse. Paul is walking in the shadows of some of the greatest and most profound thinkers in history here. And so we get a little bit of an idea of what he's up against. But Paul holds his own and he goes toe to toe with them. It's a tough crowd and Paul goes for it. And he does so by first appealing to their culture. That's how he begins his message. It's his introduction, actually. In verse 22, he begins by essentially admiring the Greeks and how very religious they are. But Paul says, it's very evident. I've walked around and I see the shrines and I see the altars and I see the artwork and I see your objects of worship. You guys are very religious people. Guess what? I'm religious too. You know, I I even walked around and there was one altar that I saw that I came across and it was addressed to the unknown God. It was an altar that you used to worship the unknown God. You you have so many gods, Paul says. You have so many gods that you're building the altars that you don't even know. You have no idea if they exist. And so maybe maybe they're out there somewhere and we can still worship them. There's, There's a level of absurdity to this. Right, this altar was actually most likely there because the Greeks were afraid to inadvertently um, ignore any gods out there somewhere that they didn't know about. And so, so they figured if we can build this altar to an unknown God, perhaps this can just serve as a catch-all. Right? We don't want to offend any gods that may be out there. And so if we build this one, this kind of just covers all the rest. 
and we'll be good. We won't be, we, we won't be offensive to any of the gods and they won't be angry with us, right? But what's happening though is that the Athenians, in an attempt to honor many false gods in, in such ironic fashion, have displayed a level of ignorance in the one true God. In an attempt not to offend a God, they actually have in their ignorance. And so Paul uses it as an object lesson, really. It's, a, it's an illustration to segue into his message about the one true living God. And Paul tells them in his introduction, this God that you don't know, I am going to tell you who he is. He is unknown to you, but he can be known. And then he launches into his sermon, his message. I've, I've split up Paul's message into three different sections, really three themes that come through the passage. We'll walk through each of these with our remaining time. Um, from Paul's message, we learn these three things about God. I'll give them to you up front to serve as a roadmap, right? Three themes that we see. First, God is creator. God is creator. Second, God is close. God is close. And finally, third, God conveys. God is creator. God is close. God conveys. Paul begins by explaining that God is creator. He made the world and everything in it including you and I. And so what does this mean for us practically, Paul says? Really what Paul wants to do is clear up a few misunderstandings about who God is. And because he is the creator, here are the things, Paul says, that we can learn about him. Some misunderstandings that need to be cleared up. First, the God who made the world and everything in it, he doesn't live in temples that are made by man. He doesn't live in temples that you could build, right? This reference to being made by man or being made by human hands is a way to belittle something. Basically, Paul is saying, you really think that you could build something that contains the Lord of all heaven and all earth? Really? You think you can put boundaries around him? You think you can put him in a box? No. Because he is creator, his dwelling place is much more glorious than anything you could ever imagine or build. It's the first misunderstanding. The second misunderstanding, not only does God not live in temples made by human hands, he also isn't served by human hands. This is actually a little bit uh, of... Um, this is countercultural to that time with these ancient Greek gods and even Roman gods. Many humans believed that these gods needed them for something, that the gods needed them to do something or to serve them. And, and, and Paul's saying, no, he's not served by human hands because he doesn't need anything. God doesn't need anything. He is self-sufficient. He is self-existent. There is nothing outside of his very existence that he needs to exist. This is different from you and I, right? Because we need water and we need food and we need shelter. You take those things away. We cannot exist. We cannot exist without the air that we breathe. But God is self-existent. He does not need anything outside of his own being. This may be a rude awakening for some of you, but God doesn't need you. 
God doesn't need you. And I'm thankful that he doesn't need you. And I'm thankful that he doesn't need me. Because if he did, he would cease to be God. This is why this concept is so important. If God wasn't self-sufficient, if God needed something outside of his own existence, he wouldn't be worth depending on. We couldn't depend on him because he would have a weakness. He would have a way, there would be potentially a way for him to let us down, and he cannot let us down. He is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. Paul explains that God actually gives us our very breath, and so no, God doesn't need us. We actually need him. As an infant needs their parents to survive, the parents don't need the infant. Yes, the infant has infinite value because they were made in God's image and the infant brings joy and we love the infant. From existence standpoint, the parents don't need the infant to exist. In the same way, how much more so does God not need us? And how much more so do we need him? Whether you believe in him or not this morning, you owe your very existence to him. The very breath of air that you just breathed in was took under his authority. And your ignorance of him doesn't change that. It's the second misunderstanding. He is not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything from us. The third misunderstanding that Paul clears up is that since God is creator... He cannot be represented by an image made by human design. Verse 29, Paul explains, being then God's offspring, since we were created by God, we ought not to think that he is like gold or like silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. You see, Paul explains, we are actually being his offspring made in God's image. But when we build these idols created from our limited imagination and knowledge, it is a symbolic attempt to try and make God in our image. There is no amount of our imaginations or creativity that we can stretch to define what God is and what he looks like. Any sort of attempt that we have in art or in culture to, to put down what God is and what he looks like will come up short ultimately. Right? He cannot be contained. Just as God cannot be contained in temples that we could build, he cannot be contained in our minds and imagination. You see, we are made in his image. And if we are, are living thinking, conscious beings, then God must be all of that and so much more. He cannot be any less of that. He cannot be portrayed as inanimate objects of our own making. When we do that, in a sense, it's an attempt to define who God is. You don't get to define who God is, though. You don't, you, know, you don't get to say, you don't have the authority to say, oh, well, I think God is like this. 
Or I think God is, is like that. Or God wouldn't do that. Or God would do this. Or, or God is telling me this. Or God is not telling me that. We don't have the authority to do that. Only God does. Only God has that authority, which is why Scripture is so important in being God's Word. While we don't define God or have the authority to define God, God defines Himself. He tells us who He is and what He looks like in His Word. And we can know Him. And so every time we tell somebody who God is or what He is like, or what he says, it should always come back to this. Because this is God telling us who he is, defining himself. And if he is a personal being, if he has told us who he is, he can be known, he can be understood, he can be trusted. And Paul tells the Athenians, you were created to know him and to long for him and to desire him. Because he is the creator and sustainer of all things and in all life, he is actively involved in his creation, right? And so Paul tells the Athenians, because God is the creator, you long for him and he is close. God is close. This is verses 26 through 28. Verse 26 explains that God created all men through man. And that through one man, all the nations over the face of the earth were born and God determined the allotted time and location of their dwelling place. Basically saying God has directed all of mankind over the face of the earth. He has determined a specific time and a specific place for them to be. Why? Why on earth did God do this? Why did God create all of us? If God doesn't need us, then why on earth did he create us? The answer is actually in verse 27, if you take a look. That they should seek God. The entire purpose of God creating us and scattering us over the nations, over the face of the earth, was so that we could know God. We were designed created to yearn, to long for God. This is why if you're an unbeliever in the room, if you're not uh, picking up or you just don't believe what I'm saying or what God's word is saying here, you still know in the deepest part of your heart that there has to be something more to this life. There just has to be something else. This can't just be it. Tom Brady, who's arguably one of the best football players of all time, I would say is. Uh, He was one time interviewed by 60 Minutes. This was way back in 2005. Brady had already won three Super Bowls at the ripe age of 27. And at this point was what we perceived to be the top of his game. But in this interview, you can almost hear the emptiness of Tom Brady's voice. Brady says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? And the interview asks him, do you know the answer? And Tom Brady says, I wish I did. 
I wish I did. And if what scripture says is true, which it is, seven Super Bowl rings isn't going to do it either. St. Augustine in his confessions wrote, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. But until we see God, we're in the dark, asking the question, there has to be something more. We're in the dark, feeling around for the light switch, if you will, kind of grasping at anything that may fulfill us. This is actually the picture that we get in in verse 27. Right, Paul, Paul says, mankind seeks God and perhaps feels their way toward him and tries to find him. You see, in our sin and in our brokenness, we, we grasp for God in the dark. You know there's something out there and you feel around for it as you would for the light switch. You, you don't know what it is. You don't know what it looks like and you don't even know how to get there, but you know there's something. And so I am just going to keep putting my hands out in front of me in hopes that I find it by blind chance. We don't know that it's God that we're grasping for, but we know we are grasping for something. And this is why the Greeks had an altar to the unknown God. They're saying, I don't know him. I don't know where he is but we're going to look for anything that can somehow turn the lights on. We will grasp at anything that we think will satisfy us. In our context, we will consume entertainment and success and wealth and positions. We will consume addictions all in hopes that maybe just one of those things will turn the lights on. That just one of those things will be the answer in which we seek. And all of it just leaves us in the dark just as much as before. And you will never reach that point of light until someone who is the very embodiment of light itself comes and turns the lights on for you. Paul paints this very sad picture of people grasping for something in the dark, coming up empty-handed. It feels rather hopeless. But then Paul gives them hope at the end of verse 27. He says, look, God is not that far from each one of us. God is close. Because we live and move and have our being in him, because we were created by him, he can be known. And if he can be known, then he is close. He is closer to you in this moment than you even realize. You may feel like you're walking around in the unknown, but I tell you, he can be known because he is close and he has revealed himself to us. We all in our sinful nature didn't know God and we were separated from God, yet we blindly grasped for him unsuccessfully. We could not find him and so he found us. We could not go to him and reach him, so he came to us. Paul essentially tells the Greeks, you have enough information. 
to know that there is something there. And so would you let me bridge the gap for you here and help you to know what is unknown to you? Which brings us to the final part of Paul's message, the conclusion where God conveys. God is creator. God is close. God conveys. I tried to keep up with the alliteration here with with, uh, three C's. You could also say that God communicates or God commands, but I was intentional on using the word convey because by definition, convey means to uh, make an idea or an impression or a feeling known or understandable to someone. In this case, God conveys his very being. He makes himself known. Paul closes his message by explaining that God has fully revealed himself uh, to us through Jesus. And God has appointed Jesus to be his righteous judge when that day comes. Right? When that day comes, Jesus will make all things new. And Jesus will make all things right on that final day. And if you want proof... Paul says that this is so that this day is coming and that Jesus is the one that's going to sit in that chair. Paul says, look to the resurrection. You want proof? There's an empty tomb that I can show you that he rose from the grave. You want assurance that God has revealed himself to us in Jesus? Do you want proof that Jesus is the appointed one and will make all things right? Do you want proof that the God who was once unknown to us can now be known? Look to the empty tomb. Because the resurrection validates everything that Jesus said about himself. The resurrection validates everything that the prophets wrote about. The resurrection validates everything that we teach even to this day. And so it leaves us with a final question. How can I know God? How can I be counted righteousness uh, as righteous in his eyes on that appointed judgment day? If that day is truly coming and I'm going to stand before a judge who is Jesus, how can I know that he will declare me innocent? How can I know that I'm going to make the cut? Paul tells the Athenians what they need to do in verse 30. Paul commands them to repent. To repent, it simply means to turn, to change the direction, right? You're in pursuit of one thing, and then the light clicks on, and you realize you're walking the wrong way, a path of destruction, and so you change directions, and you start walking towards God. In the context of the passage, Paul is telling the Athenians, turn away from your idols. Don't worship them, they lead to death. Turn away from them and turn to the one true knowable God. And in our context, it's not much different. We are commanded to turn away from the things that take God's place in our hearts. Right, right? We are commanded to turn from those things, the idols that we have set up in the shrines of our heart, a place where only God can fit, right? And we are called to turn to God and make God, make Jesus our heart's greatest pursuit. And Paul describes in these these closing verses how uh, Jesus' death and resurrection was a turning point actually in human history. Before Christ, we were in times of ignorance that God overlooked. 
This basically means that there was a time in history that God had not fully revealed himself, that he had not fully made himself known, and the people were ignorant to who God was. Now, God didn't approve of this ignorance, but he did uh, let past ignorance and past sins slide. You you may be surprised um, to hear that God overlooked sins, that he was patient with the sins. This is what Romans 3.25 gets at. It describes it as his forbearance, right? In his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. That's straight from scripture, Romans 3.25. But when Jesus came, that changed everything. Because now God is acting. He is no longer passive in his dealings with human history. He is active. And he is no longer overlooking the sins of humanity and no longer overlooking our ignorance. Why? because we are no longer in the time of ignorance. Because the unknown God is now the known God in the form of Jesus Christ. God has revealed everything that he needed to reveal. He has revealed everything that we need to know. And he's not going to reveal anything else in this age. Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God. And if that's not enough for you, nothing ever will be. In light of this revelation, God now commands everyone to repent, to turn to him. Ignorance is no excuse for not responding to God. Perhaps you sit here this morning and you can relate to the ice queen that I mentioned at the beginning of our time together. You sit there and you say, I hear a voice calling me and it is powerful and it is wooing me and calling on me to follow it. I assure you that what you seek and what you are trying to find in the dark is God. It's Jesus. And he calls to you and he draws you to himself through Jesus. If you haven't turned to him, it's time. Would you let this morning be the day that you turn to Jesus, that you go to him and submit to him for your life? Would you pray with me? Lord, we are thankful for how good you are to us, Father. While we were in sin, while we rejected you, while we walked away from you, you provided a way out. You provided forgiveness because you loved us. We did not earn your love. We did not deserve your love. But in your love, you provided us, Jesus. And in Christ, we not only found salvation, but we found who you really were in the flesh. I pray this morning that you would stir among our hearts, Father. And if there is anybody who has yet to turn to you today, even listening right now, would your spirit impress their hearts and would they submit to you? And in your holy name I pray, amen.